previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. There's nothing like Baltimore City when the sports teams are on top. From Delaware, almost live, this is a Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Welcome to this week's edition of the Sports Refuge Podcast. I'm your host, Earl Holland. This is a show where we talk with guests about their connection to sports. This week's guest, Diamond Holton, I've known for some time. Previously, she was a contributor to the Sports Refuge in a different incarnation. And since then, she's parlayed that into becoming a contributor to SB Nation's Washington Wizards blog, Bullets Forever, where she covers the Washington Wizards and Washington Mystics. She also is the social media manager for Bullets Forever's Mystics coverage as well. In this episode, I talk with Holton, a Washington, D.C. native, about how she got into writing and particularly journalism. We also discuss her favorite tennis player, Serena Williams, and where she sits among the pantheon of individual athletes in the 21st century, along with Tiger Woods, Usain Bolt, and Michael Phelps. Holton will also talk about her chance meeting with one of her journalism inspirations. Holton will also talk about how she became a fan of the New England Patriots and Tom Brady. Right now, here's my interview with Diamond Holton. This week, my guest, she was a contributor with the Sports Refuge blog, and she definitely does a lot of writing in her spare time. She wrote and covered the Mystics and covered the Washington Wizards, Diamond Holton. How are you today, Diamond? Doing good, doing good. How you doing, Earl? I'm doing absolutely great. Thank you for coming on and talking a little bit of sports with me. The biggest thing I wanted to ask you about, especially you live in Washington, D.C., in the Washington area. What was your biggest sports influences growing up? Ooh. Well, the main one would have to be Jamel Hill. That's basically of all time, in my opinion. And the funny thing was, I didn't really know who she was until maybe my freshman year when I was at University of Missouri. Because my brother told me, have you heard about Jamel Hill? And I was like, no, I don't know who Jamel Hill is. He was like, look her up. She's in NABJ. She went to Michigan State. Oh, just look her up. So I'm looking her up and I'm reading. And I'm like, okay, wow. And I started reading more of her stories. I started noticing her on Sports Center. So she's been my ultimate influence as a woman, <laughs> as a sports writer, as basically just a human being. Her ability to just speak her mind without regard of what anyone has to say. If you follow her on Twitter, you'll see her comebacks are ridiculous. <laughs> so she has no problem with speaking her mind, putting it all on the table. So she's somebody I definitely hold to a high influence. And you also got the opportunity to meet Jamel Hill recently, right? I did. So I was covering a Mystics game. But before the game, there was a BU Women's Empowerment Session. And she was there. So, of course, I left work early so I could get there to see the session and they were asking Jamel and others different questions of what's your advice, what's it like to be in the industry. And so when I saw her there, I was like, wow, this is amazing. I'm actually seeing her. And then when I found out she moved to D.C., I was like, wait, say what now? She's in my city? Are you serious? Like, really, I could maybe one day go in the grocery store and see her. I was really eager. And then when it was over, I was like, I wonder if if it's cool if I walk over and get a photo. And so I saw one of my colleagues, Jasmine, walk over and do it. So I walk over and I just basically told just thank you for everything you've ever done. I'm always following you. And I got my picture. I was just so happy. I know I sent it to at least 10 people personally because I felt like a kid 
and a fan. It's one thing to be in the same field as somebody else, but at that moment, I just felt like a kid and a fan. It was just amazing. If I could do it all over, I would. <laughs> when you were able to interact with her, I mean, she seemed pretty down to earth. Yeah, all the time. She was just like, she enjoys the compliments, but she's just like, you're going to be better than me. She told me that on Twitter. I was just like, yo, I just want to be just like you. I want to be able to speak my mind. And she was just like, you're going to be better than me. And from I remember I pinned that on my Twitter because <laughs> I was like, that is my motivation for the year. I'm going to be better than Jamel Hill one day. And it's like, that's, that's affirmative. I'm setting it down in stone. I'm determined. So as you mentioned, you were covering Mystics. What was that opportunity like to cover the Mystics? And who did you cover them for? So I write for Bullets Forever. Uh, which is an affiliate, of course, of SB Nation. So they do mainly Wizards, but they also have the Washington Mystics as well. So I was, I had experience first with the Wizards, and then I was like, well, I really want to get into WNBA. That's one of the main sports that doesn't get as much recognition as it should. And so they were looking for writers and help because I think one guy was doing everything. He was going to the games, he was writing the stories, doing the recaps, the previews, the side stories. And so I was able to get in there, help out a little bit. And so being able to be there for a whole season, covering the home games, was extraordinary because it was like, wow, I'm really doing this. I'm really interviewing players. I'm really getting firsthand knowledge. I'm really networking and getting to know other people who are just like me. Because I was always a little worried because I'm starting late. I'm 26. So most people, you know, as soon as they graduate from college, they're kind of already then jumped into the game. So it was just being able to do that and make the players aware that I'm here and I want to tell your story and I, I want to be your voice. It's so amazing. And I can't wait to do it this year. This coming May also. What led to your interest in writing? Wow. Well, actually, it wasn't journalism at all when it comes to writing. I actually wanted to be a poet <laughs> for the longest time. It was just a strong point for me. Writing has always been a strong point. It was never boring. I could take an English class and you could tell, write an essay on this, and I'd boom, I'd knock it out with no issue, no worries. I love to read, but poetry was always my first love, and it still is, <laughs> but it's always been my first love. And then as time moved on, I was like, well, I love to write, and I love sports, so why not combine the two? And I didn't really combine the two until my junior year of high school. Because for the first couple years of high school, so ninth and 10th grade, I was in like an engineering program. So I just knew, oh, I'm going to be an engineer. But then by junior year, I was just like, mm, I don't really like science. <laughs> so I'm just going to do what I love. And I always felt like if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And I truly agree with that. I know when I got into journalism, there's an old saying that goes, I was told there was no math involved. And most of the times that is true until you have to start crunching numbers for those rare things. The only math I really care about is if I'm counting the score back and forth and see how I'm tallying up how many points so-and-so had. But even then, that's pretty easy now because they got apps for all that. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's all I do. I'm like, okay, count this, count that, boom, the math is over. <laughs> So, what was your first live sports event growing up that you attended? Ooh, that would have to be my beloved Baltimore Orioles. And that was the first time I ever saw Kyle Ripken play. It was me, my dad, my brother, and my dad's dad. And we all went out so excited. I didn't know what to do. I was like, oh my goodness. At this point, there was no sports knowledge. It was just, yo, I'm going to a baseball game. 
I don't know the name of the stadium. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to a baseball game. That's all I knew, and I just knew Calvary can play the Baltimore Orioles. That's the only player I knew. Everybody else to me didn't matter. I was like, as long as Cal Ripken hits, I'm good to go. So that, that was my first game. I had so much fun. I goofed around with my brother. When they do the, the charge song, we wait till everybody's quiet and we wait. We're like, oh, charge. <laughs> just to be noticed. We just had so much fun. And then that's when I learned, like, all the obscenities people say. <laughs> that they yell at the players and everything. I was like, wait, we can do that? And uh, granted, I wasn't of age, so, so my brother made it interesting for me. Um, he used to say we want a pitcher, not a butt sniffer or something like that of that nature, just to be funny. And he just, one thing about my brother, he made things interesting for me, whether it was sports games or anything. So I have really had fun going to that baseball game. What would you say is a sport that is really your first love? Is it basketball? Is it baseball? Is it football? It's actually tennis and field hockey. <laughs> tennis, that's one sport I will say family-wise that we all watched together. It was never a football game or you know how people get together for the Super Bowl. It was never that. It was always to watch, of course, Venus and Serena Williams. We always watched that. We never knew how tennis worked or, you know, how to calculate scores. We just knew that's Venus and Serena. That's who we're watching. Nobody else matters. <laughs> but yeah, tennis was my first love. And I didn't fall in love with field hockey until I was at Salisbury University and I covered it for the first time. But I love that too. I still try to keep track of Salisbury as well just to see how that field hockey team is going on. Yeah, I tell you, I really didn't know much about field hockey. When I tried writing it, I just wrote it as if it were just a soccer game. Just goals, assists. I didn't worry about anything else. Time, the time the goal was scored, the penalty and things like that. I knew as soon as the officials went like this, I know it's a penalty <laughs> corner. And that's when I knew, okay, this is where... You just got to keep your eyes because it goes fast and furious. Yeah, you're better than me because I remember because um, at the time, Mitch Northam was my sports editor. So he was like, hey, have you come to field hockey for it? I was like, um, nope, I don't really know what that is. He's like, okay, well, could you cover for me? Just, you know, just go get some interviews, you know, focus on what you see. And so that was also the first time I was in the press box. I still have the pictures to this day. Of me taking selfies in the press box, I'm like, oh my god, I'm in a press box. Like this, this is amazing. Like, is this possible? Is this, is this really possible? And then when the game started, I was like, okay, the whistle kept blowing, and I was like, wait, what happened? The whistle blew more frequently than most sports, and it's like it's a foul for almost everything. If the sticks hit each other, and so it was like, okay, I'm gonna get this down pat, you know. And then when I interviewed the coach, I stumbled a bit because I was just so nervous. I, I really didn't know what to ask. I didn't want to ask that basic question, how do you think your team played today every time? I wanted to make sure I did a lot of open ended questions. But yeah, tennis and field hockey have been two sports that I've stuck with. If they were only two sports remaining, I'd be good. <laughs> Going back to tennis a little, I know that especially when Venus and Serena hit the scene, Venus definitely was at one point the star. She was the right. one. And then as time went along, and then of course due to Venus's health issues, Serena started just ascending and became that dominant athlete. Yes, definitely. It just amazes me how that change happened because it was always Venus this and Venus that. And you always thought, it was like, okay. Venus is the older sister. You kind of expect that. It's the older sister. She's the role model. And then 
it's like I don't know what happened. I don't know if a switch turned on for Venus and she just skyrocketed. It was like, oh, okay. Well, now we got two sisters in the game. Maybe one that's better than the other, but, you know, it's just been fun watching them, even to this day. <laughs> I can't believe they're still in the game. Yeah, but they're playing at an age where most people, even you look at a lot of the men, they would have retired by now. I think Andre Agassi and Pete Sanford's probably retired close to that age. And to see Serena still going, even after having a child, that's remarkable. Yeah, honestly, I thought they would be retired by now. Or I had a fear, too, that, you know, once the announcement came out that she was pregnant, I was like, oh, does this mean that's it? Like, she won the Australian Open. You find out she was pregnant during the Australian Open. It's like, wait, so is that it? What do I do? I understand there's other players there that are just as good, you know, and doing their thing. But it was like, I've watched them play to the point where you could close your eyes and you knew it was them playing because they had the beads in their hair. It was like nobody else had beads in there but them. So it was like, what do you do when they hang the rackets up? What do I do? I have no idea. Yeah, it would always be funny if they decided on their way out, they just sort of rock the beads one last time, just to sort of go out the way they came in. But hopefully it's a little bit of a while until they both decide to call it quit. And even then, you still see Martina still still play doubles at big events. So, I mean, that's interesting. Do you feel that Serena will break the record that she's tied with Margaret Court right now? And what would your thoughts be on that? As a fan, she has no choice but to break that record. <laughs> I think she's at 23. She can tie it, of course, at 24. And then, of course, 25 breaks it. I think she can. She's come so close last year. Of course, she didn't do the Australian Open. She was in the French Open. She was in Wimbledon. And, of course, the U.S. Open. So she's had multiple opportunities. But I didn't think it would happen last year because she was still a little rusty. Now, you have a kid. The troubles when she did have her daughter, you got to bounce back from that. You got to get back in the swing of things. For months, you're not really moving. You're just being a mom. And it's like, okay, time to get back to work. Time to get my speed back. Time to lose baby fat. It was just a lot going on. And I wasn't expecting her to possibly win. If she did win, like, great. That would be, like, the greatest story. Have a baby and still kick butt. But... It was just amazing to see her bounce back and still let the world know, oh, I'm still a contender. Don't let the fact that I had a kid fool you. But if she was to break that record, I might cry. <laughs> I just might cry. I shed a couple tears when she reached 23. And I shed more tears because I wanted both of them to win that day. Because, of course, I wanted Serena to win because 23. That would be the most in open era. But I was also rooting for Venus at the same time because it had been so long since Venus had won a Grand Slam. It was like, who do I root for? And I was like, oh, I'm going to root for both of them. And then I was like, wait, they both won semifinals. So that means they're both playing each other. It's like, oh, crap. Who do you root for? What do you do? It was too insane. And I know, especially a couple of years ago, Serena had some chances before she got to the finals of a few events of that string where she was almost about to do the Grand Slam in the single year, and she fell a little short. And we all know no event is a guarantee, especially even for the best. Like, for example, we can look at probably... If you go by individual athletes, so you push Brady aside, you push LeBron aside, you push Kobe aside. It was Serena and Tiger Woods. Those were the two most dominant in a sport. And Usain Bolt. I can't forget Usain Bolt. I think we wouldn't be doing our due diligence if Usain Bolt wasn't mentioned. Okay, yeah, Michael Phelps too. But the most dominant individual sport athletes... 
even though give or take Phelps is some of them were relays. Those four were probably the biggest. Tiger Woods had his issues, and then recently last year started seeing him come back. And the odds are he's probably never going to catch Jack Nicholas. But even then, Jack Nicholas won a couple of majors in his late forties and maybe early fifties too. So lightning can strike. But between those two, Bolt and Phelps aside, Serena and Tiger were the two dominant athletes in individual sports. Oh, yeah. Because I'm more of a Serena fan than a Tiger fan. I mean, all respect to Tiger Woods. I mean, you can't just leave him out. But I feel like he hit a point in his career where everybody started to wonder, was this it? And I feel like with Serena, she hasn't hit that point in her career yet. Where it's like, is this it? What are we going to do? So for them, in their respective sports, they are the greatest. Nobody can take that from them. It's hard to take that from them. I mean, you can name other players that come close, but then it's like you still got to include Serena in tennis. You still got to include Tiger and golf. If you don't include them, how is that even possible to have the sport remain standing? Yeah, I know my aunt is a big tennis fan, and she watched the Grand Slam events, especially when it comes, I think, more Wimbledon time. She's ready to watch that one, especially yeah. with it being overseas like the French Open and Australian Open and just trying to have those weird hours to watch those events. Yeah. What's your favorite event to watch, and what would be the one Grand Slam you'd love to attend to even cover as a reporter and go to as a spectator? Hmm. I'd have to say, for both of those, it would be the Australian Open because, oh my God, watching the Australian Open here in D.C. is so hard because they're 16 hours ahead. So, of course, you know, if you're a, a name player and everybody knows you, you play close to the evening. And so the evening over there is like 4 or 5 in the morning over here. And I don't know about everybody else, but I value my sleep. Because <laughs> I remember when she went to the final and won, I had to set an alarm because it was like, okay, I don't want to miss this. But at the same time, why does it have to be at five in the morning? But if I could cover the Australian Open, one, because I've never been to Australia. But if I could cover the Australian Open, that'd be amazing. It just looks so nice to be there, the atmosphere, the culture. Honestly, if I could cover all the Grand Slams, that'd be dope. I mean, well, the closest one for me would be U.S. Open. I mean, it's New York. <laughs> but if I had to pick and someone said, hey, I'm going to fly you out to any Grand Slam you want to go to, I'm picking the Australian Open, no doubt. Yeah, Wimbledon would be nice just because of the tradition and it being England and stuff. But yeah, that makes sense. Definitely Australia. Moving on to some of your other favorite sports and teams. Well, going back, actually, before we do that, going back to being a journalist and interviewing, what was the toughest interview that you ever had? Mm. We talking college or we talking professional? It doesn't matter either one. It could be tough because the interviewer is a tough person that you can hardly get words out of, or it could be anything. Um, I would have to say the toughest interview I ever did was when I covered rugby in college. And that was because rugby was a Salisbury sport, but it wasn't, from what I remember, it wasn't considered part of the NCAA sport. It was more of a club sport. So, like, for those who aren't familiar, when you do, like, an NCAA sport, you have the sports people come down and give you the stat sheets and let you know who scored what, how many points this person had, and vice versa. Whereas the club sports, there is nobody. <laughs> they don't even know that you're there as a journalist. You're kind of just seeming like a spectator. 
And so it was hard for me because, one, I wasn't really familiar with the rules on rugby, and I didn't really understand it. But, of course, it needed to be covered, and I was like, hey, I'll do it. And it was hard because when it came time to interview, I didn't know what to ask. I couldn't even ask that basic question, how do you think your team did? Because I didn't even know what the score was, what was considered a score. (laughs) I didn't understand, like, when they ran to, I guess we call it the end zone, they placed the ball down in a certain spot. And I was just like, what does that mean? What's the difference between placing it on the left and on the right? That was so hard, and I felt so bad personally because – when it came time to write the article, it was so short. And I was just like, this is unacceptable. I can't give this. Mitch was still my editor at the time. It wasn't even 600 words. That's not right. I got to figure out something. But, you know, he eventually helped me out and added some things onto it. But that was probably the worst, interviewing people and not knowing what to ask. And that's bad, mostly because it's like, if you don't know what to ask, they're looking at you like a deer in headlights. Like, okay, this is your show. What you want to know? They can't just give me what I want to know just spot on. But yeah, that was the hardest ever. (laughs) Have you ever written news? No, sports has always been my thing. News, not really. I did a couple articles when I had a a practicum at Salisbury when I worked with Delmar Public Radio. So we covered a couple things like the space shuttle and other things like that. But it was brief news, but mostly just to record on radio. I didn't really dabble in it in depth as much as I would have wanted to. Because I was so like, okay, I'm going to do sports. This is all I know. This is all I'm going to do. I drilled that into my head. And I kind of wish I had dabbled into it. That way I would have had a bigger portfolio. But mostly sports has always been my thing. Has there ever been a thought, I guess, more writing opinion pieces as opposed to more game coverage and live stuff? Yeah, the one thing I liked about doing op-eds or opinion pieces, I was able to express myself, but I didn't want to sound too, too personal. I remember one of the pieces I did in college and professional, but first in college was I did a piece on Jameis Winston, and people loved it. But see, that one was kind of personal, but I guess I didn't use the word I all the time. Like, I don't like him because, and I didn't like the heat. I basically gave a rundown of his background while he was at Florida State and why I felt he was an overrated player and et cetera. And then I did one professionally, too. It was on Serena, and it was basically explaining why she had it so hard as an athlete and as a black woman in sports in comparison to the other athletes and to the other players in that specific sport or even outside that sport, why she's not getting as much recognition as she should have gotten. Op-eds were cool, but it was just something about game recaps because it allowed me to be in the moment and be able to witness so much. As you touch on the subject of Serena being the black woman in tennis, being a black woman in journalism, what are some of the advantages and drawbacks there are being a woman of color in covering sports? Well, of course, the main drawback is it's a male-dominated field. So it's always that little bug in my ear or in most women's ear. You have to be twice as good just to get that first foot in the door. That was always a huge drawback because I felt like nobody would notice me. And even if, you know, I was very exuberant or very outspoken, you still had to do more no matter what. You could write a great article, but oh, such and such could have wrote something better. And, and they'll look at his more because they're like, oh, maybe he has more knowledge. But that's one big drawback. I feel like that's the main drawback. Other than that, it hasn't been a huge hassle 
being in this field, I mean, of course, trying to find a paying gig is always one of the biggest hassles, but just trying to work in a male-dominated field that has been dominated like that for so long, it, it's hard to, you know, say, hey, I'm here. Look at me. I can do this. I know things, too. Because you'd be surprised how many times, like, the looks I get when I speak of this player or this team and they're like you know that and I'm like yeah I know it just like you know it <laughs> so it that's probably one of the biggest drawbacks is being in a male-dominated field what did you think about Cam Newton's remarks a couple of years ago it feels like it's been a couple of years ago his response to that one female reporter I didn't like it I mean some people took it way out of proportion but for me it was like you wouldn't make that response if a man asked that question. So in my opinion, based upon what I see in the video and witnessing it, it was as if when she asked that question, he was like, wow, you actually know this stuff? No. And it's like, she wouldn't be there if she didn't. It's a reason she's there. It's a reason she was able to cover the Carolina Panthers. It's, you know, it's a reason for all of that. She didn't just wake up and say, oh, I want to cover the Carolina Panthers because I just want to, and boom, there she is. She she most likely worked hard to get to that point, and it was like for him to just be overly shocked, it kind of took away from her moment, so just to feel like everybody else, or feel like she's part of the group. Growing up, did you watch a lot of uh, sports casts, like the local news and local sports? Not really, because the funny thing was, as I mentioned before, we watched mostly tennis, and then, of course, my first love was writing poetry. Basketball and other stuff where the main commentators that we would see was always boring to me. Basketball and football, which is odd because I love it now, but it was always boring, and I guess it was boring back then because I didn't fully understand what was going on. You know, the calls, the penalties, the fouls. There wasn't really a lot of people that I watched. I mean, I always remember Stuart Scott from just different maybe it was a, some short videos i might have would have seen or from movies that they put him in but yeah most of that I've, i never really watched people until i really got into college and got more and more in depth into it yeah and i know everybody's experience and when they started watching is different growing up i used to watch it I'd say maybe starting at the age of 10 or 11, because when I lived in Salisbury, all we had before we had these excess number of stations came out everywhere, we had WBOC, we had WMDT, we'd also get WBAL, WJZ, WMAR, uh, WRC, WTTG Channel 5, yeah, and that was pretty much it. Like I said, I can remember most of the sports anchors on those stations like, for example, I know, of course, Channel 4 was George Michael and Wally Bruckner. And then Channel 5, Steve Buckhans, Chick Hernandez. At one point, Gus Johnson used to do weekends. Yeah. Gus, yeah, Gus Johnson weekends. That's like, man, when I saw him start to do college basketball before he became Gus, it's like, wow, he moved up. I remember he was doing the weekends. And then... <laughs> And I always thought, like, the D.C. stations had the better sports anchors compared to, like, the Baltimore ones. I mean, there's a couple of good ones on the Baltimore stations, but really, D.C. basically had the better ones. I didn't even have Channel 9 or Channel 7 except for, like, brief time when I lived in Virginia. But, yeah, and, of course, you know, Scott Abraham, of course, is up there on Channel 7 now. So. Oh, <laughs> I do remember George Michaels because my mom, like, all she did was watch the news. That was one thing she always had it on Channel 4. So, of course, hearing George Michaels talk about the Redskins and this and that. And then, you know, as time went on, of course, he got older. I remember his protege, Lindsay Zarniak. She ended up taking over and doing the sports thing. And I was like, yo, that's pretty dope. And then when she announced she was leaving, I was like, oh, where are you going? 
I actually like you. <laughs> She's like, well, I'm going to ESPN. I was like, oh, really? <laughs> it's like you just went from News 4 here, now you're going to ESPN, the same thing I want to do? Holy crap. What do I do? What do I do? I'm like, oh, am I going to be like her too? So watching them was good as well. And the thing was, it never was, oh, I'm going to come home from school and I'm going to watch George Michaels. It was always what somebody else was doing that brought my attention to it. Like, if it wasn't for my mom always watching the news, I probably wouldn't have known who George Michaels was. And then, of course, I wouldn't have known who Lizzie Zarniak was either. So it was always a parent or a sibling or even a friend doing something and I just notice it and I'll see it again and again. I'm like, okay, this is pretty cool. I like this. Yeah, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to actually intern for George Michael like 15. Yeah, actually, time's gone by. It'll be 15 years come this June. 15 years. I was there when he was there. Wally Bruckner was there. Jill Sorensen, who used to be on Comcast Sportsnet or NBC Sportsnet Washington. She was there. She was actually leaving as as I started my internship. So I think they had two anchors. And I don't know if it was like Dan Helley or maybe it was Lindsay Zarniak who came in after Jill left. But yeah, I wasn't there before them. But it was like at that summer, it was just basically Wally, George, and maybe for like a couple of weeks, Jill. And it was a cool experience. We actually got to sit out on the new set. We'd sit off in the back of the set where they would have like the Wednesday's Child that they would do. <laughs> that thing. We'd sit there. We'd just watch. It would be Dorian Gensler and Jim Vance and George and Bob Ryan was still there by the time. It was just those four, those same four. You know, if there's any news team that anybody has, you always remember that one news team that the same four people were together. And that was the group that I remember. And Jim Vance, RIP, he was the coolest dude I ever met. One day I was walking because I was staying at American University. So I used to walk from American University to Channel 4. And it wasn't that bad of a walk. The only crazy thing was I don't know why I walked it at night, especially in like in 2004. I'm like, I'm 21 years old at the time. So yeah. And it's like one day it's like starting to get late. And normally all the interns start coming in like four. So I see Jim Vance riding he has his convertible top down he just riding like this he just riding into the parking lot yeah he was the coolest dude in the world and he was actually i think it took a little bit of time off because he had like eye surgery at the time but yeah he was the coolest dude in the world and yeah. all oh. those people yeah when he got that earring in his ear i was like yo <laughs> i like the swag i don't even think swag was a term you know, when he was there, but, you know, the swag was real, like that. And my mom noticed it, because she was like, did he get his ear pierced? And I was like, I don't think all he did. And it's a hoop. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, how awesome is that? <laughs> <sighs> Yeah, it's just like, you know, he had that look where sometimes it's like somebody's dad just trying to be a little cooler. <laughs> but yeah, and it's just like during that internship, it was really cool. You got to see what the behind the scenes was like. They would have you, basically, you'd have a notepad. You'd have three markers, actually four, black marker, green marker, red marker, blue marker. You'd use... The green marker, I believe, for every close-up they'd have, you would write the time check. And then blue, you would just do whenever some action occurred. And then red, you would put there for something that's like a wide shot of the person that you would just monitor all those things. And like one of the things I was able to catch on one of the games I was watching it was the Astros-Cubs game. Craig Biggio hit a ball that one of the Cubs couldn't find in the ivy at Wrigley Field. And the guy's just looking around, looking around, and the ball's down on the ground, and the guy's still looking at the ivy, and Craig Biggio's just motoring around the bases. He's just running. He is running. I think he got, like, an inside-the-park home run off of it. 
Wow. I believe it's been so long, I don't even remember the actual play that occurred, but that one was everywhere on every highlight. So whoever was monitoring the game for like ESPN, they saw it and knew that is a big highlight. And I was that lucky to get that highlight. But yeah, it was pretty cool. They got to sit on the set, walked around there, and the same studio where they did the sports machine, that one little studio inside Channel 4 where they do the sports machine, it's where they were doing It's Academic and all that one. You could walk in and see like the risers and all the other stuff there, and it was absolutely cool. It was a cool experience. And, you know, I was only there for a month. Like Everybody else was there three months for their summer stuff, so they got Redskins training camp and things like that. And even though it was like so short a time, that was the coolest summer ever pre-graduating college. Wow, that's crazy, man. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I mentioned before, one of the biggest things that I know George Michael gave advice to was this one of the female interns, just to know every coach on every football team, you have to know every starting quarterback, their backup, just to feel like you're on equal footing with your male counterparts. And I feel like, unfortunately, it's a sad thing where you have to feel like you have to know twice as much to be able to feel like that you know more than some of the male counterparts who, honestly, you could just listen to Sports Talk Radio. A lot of people don't know what they're talking about, and they have jobs hosting shows. Right, yeah. It'd be like that sometimes. There are certain people I'm just like, really? Like, I wouldn't have said that. Or, you know, I'm like, I could have said something better. Somebody would hire me, you know. But, yeah, I know exactly what you feel. It's, it's kind of like they're automatically assumed to just have all the knowledge without even having to prove that they have all the knowledge. It's crazy. And the biggest thing is when it comes to looking at sports, I'm like a transaction junkie. So I'm not as much lately anymore because I think the older I got, I started narrowing my scope, just focusing on my teams as opposed to like as a kid. It's like, yeah, I'd read every book about every NBA team that I could, especially pre. I remember when I was in elementary school, the library would have every book of every team. And they were from the 80s because they're like these big, white, thick cover books with everything. And they had every team except for like at the time, Miami. Charlotte, Orlando, Minnesota. That was like 23 teams back then. And then all of a sudden, oh, wow, they got the Orlando Magic book. And that was the coolest stuff in the world. And you don't really, I guess now with Wikipedia, that's basically taken all the interest of going to find a good sports book out there to just read up. I guess sort of going back after all that little tangent, you have a unique fandom. You are a fan of the Wizards. Yes. You are a fan of the Orioles. You are a fan of the Patriots. How did you become a fan of the Patriots? Oh, man. Okay, so I was in fourth grade, right? And so my fourth grade teacher was from Boston. And so at that point, I would watch football, but I wasn't watching enough to pick a team. If you asked me on Tuesday back then, I'd probably be like, oh, I'm a Tennessee Titans fan. They'll be like, why? Oh, because of Eddie George. (laughs) Or if I'm a Rams fan, because of Kurt Warner. But I remember watching the Patriots play. And the messed up part about it, it was when they won their Super Bowl in 2001. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to pick them. (laughs) And I stuck with them. And so ever since then, I've been kind of going through the different phases of being a Patriots fan. That first phase, oh, you're a bandwagon fan. So, you know, I finally... I'm out of that phase because, like, I'm still a fan. I'm, I'm 26, so it's like, you can't really call me a bandwagon no more. Now I'm in that phase of, what are you going to do now? Tom Brady's 40-something years old. It's like, are you going to stick with your team? Are you going to leave? I'm just like, no, I'm stick with my team. I believe Patriots. It's Pats Nation all the way. I guess out of all the Super Bowls, which do you think was the biggest victory in your mind? <laughs> the one I actually cried on <laughs> would have to be when we beat the Seahawks. 
because I just knew at that moment the Seahawks were going to win. And I think I was still hurt before that, losing to the Giants twice. So it was like, man, we lost to the Giants one of those years. We were undefeated. And then it was like, that's crazy. So when we finally got back to the dance, I was like, okay, we're playing the Seahawks. Seahawks are a great team, but I, I think we can do it. And then that ridiculous catch, and then they managed to get to the one-yard line. I'm like, it's the one-yard line. You have beast mode on the one-yard line. It was over before. It was, it was like, he's not going to fumble, so I can't wish that. It was like, they're going to give it to beast mode, Marshawn Lynch, and he's going to run it in for the score, and we're going to lose again. And they hiked the ball, and it's not a run play. And I'm like, oh, my God, who's open? Like, everybody, strap up, get your man, man to man, let's do this. And then he throws it, and Malcolm Butler intercepts it. And I ended up getting a noise complaint because I was in college. So I ended up getting, it was my last year, I ended up getting a noise complaint in somebody else's dorm because I was at my friend's house. And it was a noise complaint because I wouldn't shut up because I was like, yo, you, you can't shut me up right now. We just intercepted the ball in the end zone when they could have given it to Beast Mode and won the game. And it was like, we won the game. I was like, oh, my God, it's been like nine, ten years since we last won. Yo, somebody stopped, and I was, like, running the halls. It was, it was crazy. I started crying because I was so happy. I called my cousin crying. I called my mom crying. I always call my mom when my team wins. It's, she never really knows what I'm talking about, but she knows what teams I like. So when I'm always calling about them, she's like, what happened? Did you guys win? I'm like, yes, yeah, All you heard is me mumbling. And girl, I'm like, no, what's up? <laughs> she was like, what is wrong? I'm like, we won. I don't know what to do. <laughs> but that Super Bowl alone was my ultimate favorite, mainly because it was like my heart dropped and then it picked back up all at the same time. <laughs> so it was great to just witness that and still, you know, end up being champions again later. <laughs> but yeah, so it was just great. I guess as a Patriots fan, do you feel that this ride could eventually end, especially once Belichick and or Brady retires? Yeah, I've been kind of talking to myself about that. Because, <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's going to happen. You know, I can't avoid it. You know, I said Brady is in his 40s now. Belichick isn't getting no older. Eventually, they're both going to run off into the sunset. <laughs> it's going to be it. And it's like, you're kind of seeing it now. Like, for example, this season, before the playoff predictions were made and before they were set, I told my brother and my dad, because they're Cowboys fans, I was telling them, I was like, I don't remember what it feels like to be a wild card team. What does that feel like? Because I'm so used to my team going 12-4 and four, or 13-3 and three, or 14-2 and, and either being a one seed or a two seed no matter what. It was like, win the AFC East, oh, that's easy. And then we're a one seed or a two seed. So when we almost didn't keep that two seed. I was like, what does it mean to be a wild card? Like, how does that work? <laughs> it's like, it's like, what do I do? So I know that time is coming. I can tell, you know, teams that normally weren't that good are now pretty good. <laughs> like, it's crazy. So I know it's coming. Do I want it to? No, I want the next coach whenever that happens to hopefully take over the reins. Hopefully it's McDaniels. I feel like it's McDaniels. That I still don't know what was said to stop him from holding up his end of the bargain with Indianapolis, but I feel like he's the next coach. It's just, it's only right. 
I don't know what I'm gonna do. It's but it's coming. I know it's I have to accept it eventually. I'm not doing that today. But I have to accept it eventually. And looking at Bill Belichick, it's crazy that he has basically had an impact on two different franchises. People I know everybody looks at the Patriots, but people forget that a lot of the stuff he did in Cleveland led to the Ravens' success. Because basically, a lot of those guys, Ozzie Newsom was the scout for the Browns at the time when that team moved to Baltimore. And you always sort of wonder, what would have happened had Belichick not gotten fired in Cleveland slash Baltimore? Would he have the Ravens with five Super Bowls? Would Brady be a Raven? Would all this other stuff happen? That's sort of like a weird alternate universe thought. That could have actually happened if Art Modell didn't decide to just fire Belichick. I don't know. It's hard because when you look at Brady and the fact that he picked him, who would have thought Brady would have got picked? Because he wasn't a first rounder. He wasn't a second rounder. He was a late round pick. And the way he excelled with Belichick, it's crazy to think that if he was still with Cleveland says Baltimore, would they be better champions? It's, it's hard to tell. I really don't know. It's a lot of what ifs. Yeah. Funny thing is, if you ever get a chance, I'm not sure if you watch it. They have a football life on the NFL Network. They had Cleveland 95. Two of the picks on the Brown scouting board that year when Belichick was coach, Jonathan Ogden and Ray Lewis. So Ozzy's success was Belichick. We can all say Belichick could probably be responsible for seven Super Bowl rings, not counting the ones he won with the Giants. It's crazy because, I mean, because now a lot of people don't think about that. When you hear Bill Belichick, you're tying him to the Patriots and the Patriots only because, you know, that's where he's been. But it's like you got to look at his career as a whole. It's like he's downright, in my opinion, even if I wasn't a Patriots fan and I see this and look at his his paperwork and everything, he's one of the greatest coaches of all time. It's without a doubt. You got to include him. You can't just leave him out. I know Jets fans are kicking themselves. He was coaching the Jets twice for less than a day. I know that whole division wishes, but man, can something happen to the Patriots so they can fire Bill Belichick so we can get them? Like, nope, not going to happen. <laughs> don't even count on it. Like I said, the only place he would probably go, worst case, would be the Giants. And I don't think that, I think that ship has sailed. So that would probably be the only place he would go. It's crazy that looking at that, because like I said, 95, I was watching the AFC more than I was watching the NFC and I'm a Redskins fan. And just back then, it was crazy. The Steelers were good. The Colts were good. Jim Harbaugh was the quarterback of the Colts. The Browns were decent with Tess Verde. And then, like I said, that year, once all the stuff came out about Modell moving to Baltimore, they just cratered. And I think that was a big part of how Belichick is so secretive with stuff now in New England. He learned in Cleveland, when you have to deal with all this stuff about you don't even know where you're going to be next year, and it wore them down, it wore the players down and things like that. That was a huge learning lesson for him. Yeah, I can only imagine interviewing him. Like I've seen you know, his post-game conferences. I can only imagine me asking a question one day, and I'm not getting the answer I want. I will be so frustrated because he's so... I guess the term is nonchalant. He may crack a smile, but you really got to tell a really, really good joke <laughs> or something for that to happen. It could be like, hey, Bill, why is the sky blue? I mean, well, you know why the sky blue. I mean, you see it right there, don't you? It's like, is that your final answer? <laughs> like, that's all you're going to get. Who do you think would be a tougher interview, Bill Belichick or Greg Popovich? Greg, because you're only allowed two questions. <laughs> that would suck. So it's like, in that moment... You better ask your best two questions that you have, because after that, 
he's walking away regardless if you're done or not. It's like, oh, you only get two. But Belichick, you can ask probably as many questions as you want. You just won't get enough information. But Greg is like, yo, you have two questions, get it right. And then I'm done. <laughs> I was say, if we add Marshawn Lynch to that category too, then he's just here yeah. not to get fined. He might. <laughs> so I'm just here to get paid. Yep. <laughs> I guess moving on, uh, what are your career expectations as a journalist? What do you ultimately see yourself doing? I guess if you were to give yourself a window of five to maybe 10 years. Uh, well, five to 10 years, if I could give myself that window, I'm hoping to be a tennis beat writer. Like if I get the end all be all cover tennis for the rest of my life, get paid for it, of course, career wise. If I could cover tennis for the rest of my life, of course, whether Serena's playing or not, <laughs> that would be a dream come true. It's just, I love that sport. It's so entertaining. I mean, of course, football and basketball, I know I'll always be there. If I could just cover that, I'd be happy. That'd be my successful story. Like, everybody has their one story or their future successful story, which would define success. If I could be rich, great. That'd be amazing. But if I'm not rich and I'm able to do what I love, I mean, honestly, what's better than doing what you love? I mean, it's, it's a great feeling. You work harder when you're doing things that you love. So in end all, if tennis is my end game, that is my Avengers end game. It's tennis. <laughs> I know that you are a pro wrestling fan as well. And yes. I know one of your favorite teams are the Hardy Boys and Lita. Can't forget Lita. I don't know if you watched it much, but what did you think of the broken slash woken Matt Hardy gimmick that he did recently? It was interesting, <laughs> to say the least. It's kind of hard now. Like I'm not into wrestling as much as I should be. Or much as I used to be. So seeing the Hardy Boys the way they are now, it's kind of not the same. I mean, they're older. You know, they got to change their persona eventually, I understand. But I kind of miss the old Hardy Boys. Like, that WrestleMania moment when they changed the match. And I'm like, okay, so who's coming out? And I heard the music. And you know how you can get chills? I've gotten chills when Undertaker comes out because his intro is just downright creepy and amazing all at the same time. But when the Hardy Boys came out, I was like, are you kidding me? Am I a kid again? The Hardy Boys are just, they had no limits. There was nothing they couldn't do. Jumping off ladders, swanton bombs, twist of fates. And I always loved the women wrestlers because wrestling with my cousins, I was the only girl. So they were like, oh no, you gotta be the girl wrestler. And I'm like, but none of the girl wrestlers are that good. So I would always pick like Lita. Cause I'm like, okay, well Lita has Twisted Fate too. So I'm gonna just Twisted Fate everybody and win. So, but yeah, the Harder Boys, they just all time favorite. I mean, Undertaker's up there too. Don't get me wrong, but. If I had to pick, it's definitely Hardy Boys. Yeah, hey, I think the Hardy Boys, their battles with Edge and Christian and uh, the Dudley Boys, I think those matches put them to another level. I really think without Edge and Christian and, to a lesser extent, the Dudleys, I feel like they wouldn't have had that ceiling to aspire to. Yeah, because it has to be somebody. You have to pick off some tag team phenom to uh, help adjust with yours. But yeah, Dully Boys, Edge and Christian. Oh man, you're taking me back now. Like to the old, the old wrestling. Like the WWF. <laughs> like the good days. Those were amazing days. You may want to just go back and watch tapes. <laughs> like right now. 
Hey, I think that's the best thing, especially having the, the WWE Network. The best thing about it, in addition to basically getting all the pay-per-views for like basically 120 bucks, like which is three times as much you would have paid for one pay-per-view at one point. Just being able to go back to watch nearly every old match that you can especially i always talk about this being able to watch the monday nitro that was in salisbury on my 13th birthday that was the best moment ever i feel like i still remember it to that day especially sitting in the audience in that one corner of the civic center and then seeing hogan and arn anderson and all those guys it just brings you back to that moment yeah that's one thing i loved about wrestling like when you know like the major pay-per-view events were coming always knew somebody was gonna come back that hadn't wrestled in a while or somebody was gonna make a special appearance it never felt i was like never disappointed somebody was gonna make the new wrestling era like the old wrestling era like i remember there was one wrestlemania i was waiting i was going through like a list of old wrestlers that i liked who were either still wrestling or we hadn't seen and heard from because they were injured and they decided not to, you know, participate anymore. I hadn't seen Stone Cold for a while. And then when he came out and Nick Foley came out and Shawn Michaels, I was like, yo, and am I going to get the, the Doc Puppet, Sweet Chin Music, and the Stone Cold Stunner all at one time? Oh, you can count me in. I'm, I'm there. Definitely. Yeah, I always thought Royal Rumbles were the best event because next thing you know, someone you haven't seen in years. I remember, I think it was like 2000, 2002, that time like Mr. Perfect came back or like Ming came back. I'm like, wow, I can't believe they came back. And Mr. Perfect, who was probably what, late 40s at that point, he didn't look like he had aged a day. He looked the same, same hair, same look. You know, you see some guys are just balding and are fat now, but same long blonde hair, same shape he was, like 1994. It was just like nothing missed a beat. Oh, definitely. And it's like, for me to continue to be a fan, they have to keep doing it. You got to keep bringing people back. Me personally, I don't care how old they are. Just show their face. <laughs> I mean, it adds to if they're able to wrestle. That's awesome, but... Just to know they're still part of this organization. That always brings me joy. What was your thought on Hulk Hogan coming back? That might be one of those weird situations where it's like, what do you do? It's It could be one of those things that's like, man. Uh, him coming back, I mean, it was okay. You know, you kind of don't forget some of the things he said, but it was okay. I feel like for him... I feel like he needed to make a slight comeback. Not necessarily a comeback, but like he needed to be back on there. Because if not, I won't say people would have forgotten him, but then his last thing would have been the things that he said. It just would have been bad in general. But Hulk Hogan coming back, now that's somebody that's kind of old. I mean, he can wear that scarf all he wants to. <laughs> we know that ball spot's still there, buddy. <laughs> yeah, that's the one thing. I feel like a lot of people talk about, well, if you want to make wrestling better, one of the biggest things, you can't keep relying on guys from, you know, 15, 20, in this case, 30 years ago to boost things. And they talk about no part-timers. Like, Brock Lesnar barely shows up every, like, month or so on tv mm-hmm. but i know and there's a plenty of guys now who are really good it just seems like there's not much i guess traction for those guys right right i mean i guess in due time you know you got to develop your name you got to develop a name for yourself the storyline got perfect because <laughs> that's what part of me misses the old wrestling the storylines were so good there was always so much happening 
outside of the ring. Everything is so inside of the ring. Well, they're making wrestlers managers now. You know, it's I was like when wrestlers were becoming managers, it was cool. More so me, I prefer when wrestlers were um referees. That was the most entertaining for me, especially playing it as a video game because it was like I can do what I want. I could be your friend and count one, two, and then stop. And you're sitting there still pinning. I'm like, I'm not counting the three, so what are you going to do? But it's like, I kind of miss the old era because the new era is just, sometimes I feel like they're trying too hard in the sense, you know, but I mean, at least they're trying. You know, they're still one of the highest rated things to watch on TV, especially Monday Night Raw. <laughs> are you interested in seeing what a show like SmackDown will look like on Fox, on network television as opposed to cable? No, because I feel like if they were to do that, they might diminish it a little bit. That a lot of things could, can't be done because like, well, we don't want to see that and we don't advertise that. So I kind of like cable better. I mean, cable doesn't have a lot of freedom, but I feel like there's a lot more freedom in cable than there is on the basic channels like Fox 5. As we start to wind this interview up, Diamond, what are ways that people can reach out to you and connect with you? My name on Twitter <laughs> and also on Instagram is underscore pins and words, underscore, all one big word. I'm always open, whether through DMs, anything. My Facebook name is Diamond Holton, H-O-L-T-O-N. I'm always open to give advice or if you want to figure out how you can get involved with Mystics and Wizards, I'm always one call away, one DM away. We can set anything up. I'm always eager to help other people. People have helped me get to where I am so far. So I'm always eager to lend a helping hand myself. What would you say the best piece of advice you've ever received? The best advice I ever received was to be yourself and don't be afraid to take chances. And that meant a lot because sometimes in this field or just in life in general, you try to be what everyone wants you to be. And that can really, really take you away from who you are. It can take away from your personality. You know, if you read other people's articles and you want to write like them, it's cool to write like other people, but at the same time, find your niche. Find your way to tell a story. If your way of telling a story is mostly through videos. If your way of telling a story is to add some humor in it. Sometimes everything isn't always where home is. And I remember people telling me, you know, sometimes it's not what you know, sometimes it's who you know. And I noticed in D.C. it's a lot about who you know. Because I can have all the knowledge in the world, but somebody who knows that director or knows that producer will probably most likely get it more to me because they already have a relationship. So if you want to take that chance and step out and go to another state, I say do it. I'm working on it myself. I mean, because I love my home of D.C., but I do think for me it's time to press on and move forward. Anything else that you maybe want fans to know that we haven't touched on? Um, let me see. Patriots are the greatest team ever. I love my Orioles, but they're killing me slowly. <laughs> uh, I love my Wizards. You know, it's I mean, Wizards fan, Mystics fan, Orioles fan, Pats fan, all the fans out there. Even if you're not a fan of those teams, I'm always eager to talk a little trash. I got time. All day, every day. Doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, we've had our share of discussions about the Orioles and talking about the Orioles and Nationals and their run. And honestly, like we were saying that discussion earlier, the Nats only had one extra year of playoffs in the Orioles. Other than that, it was the same thing. They'd go to the playoffs, miss the playoffs, go to the playoffs, miss the playoffs, go to the playoffs, miss the playoffs. So, yeah. It still hurts 
seeing Manny Machado with the Dodgers. I was like, oh, he's in the playoffs. Must be nice. <laughs> as long as it's not pinstripes, I can live with that. Yeah, well, that's looking like Bryce Harper could probably be pinstripes. Who knows where he's going to end up, though? It's tough. Yeah, I think, especially this year as an Orioles fan, knowing that at least they put the effort in that they're rebuilding, knowing that you don't have to worry about them going after a big name because it's not going to happen, especially for a couple of years. I think that as a fan, as long as they're telling you, yes, this is a rebuild, we're not going to say like last year, oh, we're going to give it one more shot to compete and then it completely fall flat because that was a disaster. And I think in that case, everybody needed to go because for the sake of everybody, they just needed to start over. Right, yeah. I mean, we're going through that rebuilding phase. Hopefully it works out. Because I really don't want to be that Orioles fan who's 103. <laughs> Still waiting for, you know, a World Series win that I can witness. <laughs> I feel like that's what it's coming to. Worst case, you might be just in your 30s when it happens. See, the crazy thing is I was born the year the Orioles last won their World Series. I'm hoping the year they win isn't the year I die, so... I'll be mad. I'll be mad, too, from the year after wherever I am. I'll be mad if they end up winning the World Series and I wasn't even there to watch it. Right. I can only imagine how um, Cubs fans felt that year. I was like, oh, that must be nice. Oh, I hope that's me one day. <laughs> well, Diamond, I do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me. Hopefully we can do this again. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Diamond Holton. I really appreciated her taking the time out of her schedule to come on the show. And I look forward to having her back again. Next week, my guest will be Vanessa Junkin making her return. In this episode, Junkin will talk about her 2018 year in recap and whether she was able to meet some of the goals she set for herself ahead of time. We'll also take a look at some of her 2019 goals and we'll discuss some of the races she's looking forward to. We'll also have a discussion on Junkin's favorite beer and more. You can always find the show on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and now online at iHeartRadio.com and on the iHeartRadio app. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a great week. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge Podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.